Good morning, Hanuich family. Uh, what a great joy it should be for us to meet together this morning in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, although we are not meeting yet physically together, we are together spiritually in Christ. And it's in Christ that we know that our prayers are heard. It's in Christ that we know that our singing is pleasing to the Lord. It's in Christ that we know that our worship is acceptable to our God. And I trust that so far in the service this morning, you've had your heart encouraged as we've heard the announcements of what God is doing in the church, as we've prayed, as we've read scripture. I do hope and pray that your heart has been encouraged and lifted up as we come to worship our glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And hopefully all of this has prepared your heart for the preaching of the word this morning as we humble ourselves before God's infallible, inspired, and inerrant word. But before I start this morning and jump into uh, preaching this morning, I do want to take a few moments and just express uh, some gratitude and thanks to the church here at Honey Ridge. Uh, my wife and I have been here for about two weeks now, and we have been thoroughly blessed by the church family. We've been encouraged uh, by the kindness that's been shown to us, uh, whether it's in the meals that so many have prepared for us, whether it's in the hospitality that we've received. Uh, we've been encouraged by the love and, and kindness of the church family here at Honeyridge. And so on behalf of myself and my wife, I, I just want to thank you so much for this. And, and if anything, this has encouraged us even more to to get more stuck in and to get more involved in the life of the church, to, to grow in our relationship with you guys and so that we get to know you and can be a blessing to you as you have been such a blessing to us. And so again, I just want to say thank you to the church family uh, for having us and, and just for your kindness uh, and grace that you've shown to us even in the last two weeks. And we, we praise God for this church. But with all of that said, uh, it is my joy and privilege this morning to, to open up God's word to you. And, and as has already been read, our focus this morning is again on Jesus' parables, and particularly Matthew 21, verse 33 to 46. And we're looking at the famous parable that's often been called the, the parable of the tenants or the wicked tenants. Now, it's already been read for, so I won't read it again uh, just yet. But I do want to pray again and, and ask the Lord to, to help us as we, we open up his word and seek to learn and grow from his word. And so, will you not pray with me as we uh, focus our attention uh, to God's word this morning? So, let, let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for the great honor and joy of, of, of being your children, of receiving your graces and your blessings. We know, dear Lord, that by nature we are children of wrath. We are alienated and separated from you. But because of your great love, your great mercy, your grace, you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You've opened the eyes of our hearts to see wonderful and glorious things in the face of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, dear Lord, we do pray this morning in the name of your Son that you would again open our eyes to your word that we would see wonderful truths within your word and that our hearts would be challenged but also encouraged. And you, Lord, that we would be a people who respond with faith even this morning because we know, dear Lord, we are here to glorify you. We are here to seek your honor. And so we ask, Lord, uh, be glorified now even as the word is preached, even as we listen to the word. We pray, dear Lord, that you would be pleased, that you would be honored. 
And so help us, we pray. We ask that you would lead us by your spirit to understand the word, to, to uh, grasp its, its weight, and to respond appropriately. And so we pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Without a doubt, uh, one of the most popular stories and books and movies of recent history is without a doubt Lord of the Rings. Uh, it has a strong cult following and I'm sure many of you have, have read the book or, or watched the movie and been thoroughly engaged in that particular story by, by J.R.R. Tolkien. And in that particular story, in those particular movies, we, we find a particular character, Aragorn, who is one of the main characters. And in one of the books, in The Return of the King, we see how this main character returns to the city of Gondor. As you would know, if you follow the story, if you enter the story, he is the only remaining heir and prophesied king of Gondor. Yet when he returns to Gondor, he finds that the city is under a spell of darkness. He finds that the city is oppressed by a greedy steward. He finds that the city is, is under doom and despair. Now that story is not too dissimilar to what we find in Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, we, we see the return of the king, and that king is the Lord Jesus Christ. He returns to Jerusalem, yet he finds something quite disturbing. He too finds that the city is under a spell of darkness. He too finds that the city is under the influence of greedy stewards. Now to understand something of this, we would do well to understand how Matthew 21 unfolds. If you read Matthew 21, you'll see that it really starts with three symbolic actions that flow one from another. First, we see that Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem. We see that in verse 1 to 11. We see that Jesus tells his disciples to go fetch a donkey and a colt so that he could enter into Jerusalem on the back of these animals. And that's symbolically significant because Jesus purposely wants to fulfill prophecy regarding the Messianic King. He wants to fulfill that prophecy by coming into Jerusalem with humility. A prophecy that highlights the, the long-awaited return of, of the Messiah King uh, that, that the people were longing for. But after that action, we see Jesus secondly cleansing the temple. We see that in verse 12 to 17. Then we see that Jesus goes into God's house. He, he goes into the temple. And what does he find? Well, he, he doesn't find worship. He doesn't find prayer. No, he finds that the house of prayer has been turned into a place of commerce. It's a den of robbers, he says. And so Jesus, in response, overturns the tables and chases out the money lenders. And that too is symbolically significant. Because when the king returns, he is displeased with what he finds. He finds God dishonoring service, not God honoring worship. He finds self-seeking greed. And so Jesus seeks to restore the temple to what it's meant to be, a place of prayer, a place of compassion, a place of praise. But then after that, quite tellingly, we find a third action. We, we find Jesus cursing the, the barren fig tree. We see that in verse 18 to 22. After a night away, Jesus returns to Jerusalem, and when he finds a barren fig tree, he curses the tree, and miraculously and instantly it withers away. 
And again, this is symbolically significant because the fig tree represents the nation of Israel, which instead of producing fruit, is fruitless. And so Jesus judges it and and curses it. And and see, all of these actions are are really meant to portray something of of the king's dissatisfaction. It's meant to display his his, his dissatisfaction to, to what he finds in the city of God, in Jerusalem. The supposed city of God, the supposed city where God is worshipped, he sees that people care little for God. Instead of finding a people who fear God, a people who seek God in prayer, a people who serve God in righteousness, he finds a people of greed, a people who serve self, a people who ultimately will reject him, reject the king. And see, that's where our parable comes in. After Jesus' authority is questioned in verse 23 to 27, Jesus gives three parables that not only explain the source of his authority, but they further explain uh, these three symbolic actions. And what is interesting in all three of these parables, uh, that all three refer to a son or to sons, all three explain what God expects of his people, And all three surprise us in terms of who is included and who is excluded from the kingdom of God. The first parable is the parable of the two sons. We see that in verse 28 to 32. There we are taught that the true sons of God are those who repent and believe. And surprisingly, the sinner, the the tax collector, the the prostitute, they enter the kingdom of God before the self-righteous Pharisee and, and scribe. Uh, the second parable, the one that we'll be looking at this morning, we see the parable of the tenants in verse 33 to 46. And we are taught that the kingdom of God is given to those who produce fruit. And surprisingly, again, the scribes and the Pharisees not only fail to produce fruit, but they openly reject God's son, killing the son with evil intent. And the third parable that Jesus tells is the parable of the wedding feast in in Matthew 22, verse 1 to 14. There we are taught that when God's Son is not honored, God turns to the nations, God turns to the Gentiles and invites them into the kingdom. Yet for them to enter, they need to be prepared. And surprisingly, or perhaps at this point unsurprisingly, It is the religious leaders who are excluded from the kingdom of God. They're excluded from the the feast that God prepares in his kingdom. And why? Because they despise the Son. They will not honor the Son of God. See, all in all, the, the picture painted for us in Matthew 21 and Matthew 22 is that when the Son of God comes to the city of God, Jerusalem, he is ultimately displeased. He's dissatisfied because the apparent people of God care little for God. So much so that they put him to death. See, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he finds the people who are self-seeking. Even though they rejoice at his arrival, a week later, those same crowds shout, crucify him, crucify him. See, the king returns and the king finds something that is dissatisfying, displeasing. And see, all of this is really meant to to challenge us as God's people today. The challenge that all of this sets before us is this. When Jesus the king returns, what will he find? 
When Christ returns for His church, what will He see? What will He find? When He returns to this world, will He find faith? When He returns to the church, will He find fruit? When He returns to you, dear believer, will He be pleased or or displeased? See, when the King returns, what will He find? And surely that's an important question for every single one of us. Dear friend, dear Christian brother, sister, surely we want to be a people who are pleasing to God. Surely we want to to receive words of commendation and not condemnation. Surely we want to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so this question matters. We should care of of the return of the king and, and care that he finds us as a people who are fruitful. But with that, that all of this leads us to our parable this morning. And so as we consider this parable, I want us to see a, a few things that hopefully challenge us, but also encourage us with who we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the first thing I want you to take note of this morning in this parable is the expectation of fruit. The expectation of fruit. You see that in verse 33 to 34. There we read here another parable. There was a master of a house who, who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. See, Jesus starts by telling a story that would have been easy to understand in his context. See, there is this landowner who, with great care and great cost, plants a vineyard. And Jesus is quite specific about the details. Not only does this landowner plant the vineyard, but he puts a fence around it. He, he digs a wine press. He, he builds a tower. He leases it out to tenants. And all of this is meant to communicate the great care of the landowner, the, the great cost that he has incurred in planting this vineyard. But the question is, why? Why all of this care? Why all of this cost in establishing this vineyard? Why all this effort? Well, the answer should be obvious. This landowner wants fruit. He he wants a produce. He does all that he does with the expectation of fruit. In fact, that seems to be the the emphasis in this parable. The expectation of fruit is mentioned at least four times, twice in verse 34 and, and once in verse 41 and 43. See, the purpose of the vineyard and the purpose of these tenants is the production of fruit. That's what the king, that what's, that's what the landowner desires. And see, this parable reflects something of what God desires in his kingdom. After all, this landowner in this parable represents God. And the point is, God does all that he does with great care and great cost, with the expectation of fruit being produced in his kingdom and among his people. See, this has always been God's desire of us, dear beloved. He he wants his people to bear fruit. Uh, We see an example of this in in the nation of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 5, which Jesus most likely references here, we see how God looks for his people to be fruitful. It says there, the first two verses of Isaiah 5, he says, Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. 
My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of its stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine fat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. See, that's the background of Jesus' cursing of the tree. The nation of Israel is meant to bear fruit, yet it failed. And dear Christian, know this, God has not changed. God still desires fruit. He still expects his people to be fruitful. Consider the well-known passage in John 15 where Jesus says, in the first two verses, he says, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that, that, he, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may be more fruit. In verse 8 he says, But this, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Do you see what God expects of his people? He wants us to, to prove that we are his people by being fruitful, by bearing fruit. That's what our Father wants. That's what glorifies him. How? How do we glorify him? By bearing fruit, by producing fruit. Now the question really becomes, what is the fruit that he expects? Now everything else in this parable is, is quite easy to discern. Uh, the master of the vineyard is God. The, the vineyard is a representation of the kingdom of God. The tenants are the religious leaders. The, the servants are the prophets. And, and the son is very clearly Jesus. The more challenging question is, what does the fruit represent? What kind of fruit does God desire? Now, there are a few good answers to that question. The desired fruit could be obedience. It could be repentance. It could even be righteousness. Yet, I'm persuaded that the fruit that God expects in this parable is first and foremost faith. Faith, I'd like to remind you that the Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.6. And whatever is not from faith, Romans 14.23 tells us, is sin. See, faith is the all-important fruit that God expects to see in his people. That's why when Jesus responds to the Pharisees in verse 42, he quotes an Old Testament passage that highlights how people respond to the Messiah. See, in verse 42, he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22 to 23, and there he says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That passage speaks of, of how the Messiah is rejected by some, but he's received by others as marvelous. They just say, some reject the Messiah in unbelief, and others receive him in faith. See, although the emphasis in this parable is the need for fruit, Jesus draws attention to how the Son is received in this parable, which suggests to us, the fruit that God ultimately wants, the, the fruit that he desires, the, the fruit that he expects, is faith. We need to recognize again the importance of faith. Faith is the chief grace from which every other grace flows. True obedience flows from faith. True repentance always turns us by faith in, to faith in Christ. 
True righteousness is only ours by faith in Christ. And don't misunderstand me here. God wants to see the fruit of repentance. He wants to see obedience. He wants to see good works. He wants to see zeal. He wants to see holiness. But if these graces are divorced from faith, they're ultimately displeasing to God. The fundamental fruit that, that God desires and expects of his people is, is faith. And that's why the Puritan Thomas Brooks said it this way. For men have faith in Christ, their best services are but glorious sins. And so the challenge for us this morning is, is are we a people of faith? When God comes, will he find us being a people who, who believe and trust and, and believe in his son, who receive the son? Have we become a people of faith? Has your faith, dear believer, your trust, your confidence, your hope been placed in Christ? If you are a Christian, even this morning, are you walking by faith and not by sight? Is your service, your obedience, your, your repentance, your good works, are they all rooted and established by faith in Christ? See, God desires of us to be a people of faith, beloved. Can we say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Dear friends, dear beloved of God, the fruit that God is looking for is faith. The fruit that pleases his heart is faith. And so let us be a people of faith. This leads me to the second thing I want us to see in this parable. Not just the expectation of fruit that speaks of our purpose as God's people. We have the purpose of being a faithful people producing that fruit. But I want you to see also, secondly, the, the evil of unbelief. The, the evil of unbelief. We, we see this in verse 35 to 39. There Jesus carries on with the story and he says, And the tenants took his servants and beat one killed another, and stoned another. Again, he, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Here we are, we are told of the evil and wicked tenants. Oh, we here see here that they, they disdain and despise and deny the master who hired them so much so that they put to death his son. And not only do they persecute and, and murder his servants of this landowner, they with greedy intent and maleficent force murder his son. See, their evil is really highlighted when you compare and contrast it with the grace of this master. Even though, the, even though they have been disobedient, even though they have failed to fulfill their calling, even though they've abused and killed his first set of servants, the master still sends other servants to, to plead. He even sends his, his son to win them over. Yet it is all to no avail. They carry out their wicked schemes with no fear whatsoever. And they violently murder the son of the master. 
And see, this parable and these tenets really reveal to us the evil of unbelief. Just as faith is the chief grace from which all other graces flow, so unbelief is the chief sin. The chief sin from which every other sin is flown or, or tinged by. And what is unbelief but, but the willful rebellion against God? What is it but the exaltation of self in opposition to God? In fact, I would suggest to you that in verse 38, we see a helpful window into the heart of unbelief. There the, the tenants say to themselves, come, this is the air, let us kill him and have his inheritance. See, they are inspired and motivated by greed. They are motivated by selfish desires. They are focused on self. And isn't this the motive behind all unbelief? All unbelief desires to to exalt self and forsake God. All unbelief is turned in on self and turned away from God. All unbelief wants to remove God as Lord and and place self as, as king. And isn't this what we see all over our world today? Do we not see man exalting himself over God so that man defines what is good, true, and beautiful? So that man defines what is right and wrong, what is male and female, what is marriage and what is not. See, let us recognize the the evil of unbelief where where man in his pride, self-seeking, seeks to exalt himself over God. What What evil? Think of God's grace in how he's made us in his image. Think of his providence in how he provides for us. Think of his patience, how he cares for us and repeatedly invites us to himself. Yet mankind continually rejects God in unbelief. Mankind, like these tenants, spur, spurn his invitation, his grace. And so here we see something of the, the evil of unbelief in these tenants who, who despise and deny and put to death the Son of God. Now the scribes and the Pharisees are a prime example of this. Not only do they rebel against God by rejecting His Son, but they are motivated by self. Look at the end of this parable, at the end of Jesus' application in verse 45 and 46. There we are told that when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to appear prophet. Did you notice they they are people who fear men, not God? Because they and why is that? Because they find they found their worth in being exalted in the eyes of man. They wanted the position of prominence and power. They loved to be praised by people. See, they were people who were focused on self, and they found their self worth in the uh, adoration of others. In John twelve nineteen, we find a glimpse of the heart of the of the Pharisee. Uh, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, uh, John records that the Pharisees tell one another, they say this, look, the world has gone after him. See, they were jealous of Christ. Just as these tenants were jealous of the son's inheritance, so too the Pharisees were jealous of what rightly belongs to Christ. See, these Pharisees, these religious leaders were self-focused, self-exalting, and self-centered people. And it is this preoccupation with self that leads them to despise and eventually put to death the Son of God. 
Now, at this point, we, we need to be very careful to not look down on those poor Pharisees. There is a tendency, isn't there, for us to, to look down on those poor Pharisees who just don't understand the way the things, understand the things we do. No, the Pharisees aren't meant to be a punching bag for our self-righteousness. No, they are placed before us as a warning not to walk in their ways. We need to recognize that we too are often prone to unbelief. Yes, even Christians who have confessed faith in Christ can fall into the sin of unbelief. Uh, the Puritan Stephen Charnock uh, wrote a very helpful treatise on, on unbelief, and he exhorts Christians in that treatise to be sensible of unbelief. He says true faith is always attended with a sense of unbelief. And so if we're honest with ourselves, we would acknowledge this. How often do we not seek our own glory at the expense of God's glory? How often do we not exalt ourselves and not seek what is pleasing to God. Let's be honest, we are often motivated by self and not God's glory. Why do you think the Bible exhorts us again and again to glorify and praise and exalt God? Because by nature, by our sinful nature, we naturally want to glorify and praise and exalt self. See, unbelief, as Charnock says, is a sin a believer can easily fall into. And therefore, we need to be watchful against the sin. Remember the warning of Hebrews chapter 3, 12, where, where the writer uh, uses the example of Israel in the wilderness. And he says there, take care, brothers, watch out, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. In fact, John Piper, in his book on unbelief, makes this bold claim. He says, the most basic battle of our life is the battle to believe the living God and not to allow our hearts to become an evil heart of unbelief. But, but how does that happen? How, how do our hearts become hardened in unbelief? Well, it happens when our motives become fixed on self. It happens when we care more for what we can get than what we give. It happens when we exalt self over and above God's glory. It happens when the things of God even are used as a platform for self-promotion. See, the pathway to the evil of unbelief is the exaltation of self. That's why Stephen Charnock warned, this way, he warned us this way. He said, he that esteems himself as something will quickly esteem Christ as nothing. Beloved, let us be weary of the evil of unbelief. Let us be weary of exalting ourselves over God. Let us be weary of falling into that sinful snare of selfishness that so easily leads us away from the living God. So, so far we've, we've seen the, the expectation of fruit, which addresses our purpose as God's people. We are called to bear fruit. And we've also considered the evil of unbelief, which highlights our greatest problem, which is selfishness. But a question we would do well to ask at this point is, how can we be motivated to stay clear of unbelief? And how can we be motivated to be a people of faith? Well, one way to do this is by understanding very clearly what the punishment is due for unbelief and what the privileges are of those who have faith. And so with that in mind, uh, the third thing I want you to see in, in this parable is the, the punishment of unbelief, or as I have called it, the eviction of the faithless. 
the eviction of the faith, as you see that in verse 40 to 41. In verse 40 to 41, Jesus has finished telling the parable, and he, he turns to the Pharisees to hear their response to the story. He says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Uh, they say to him, this the Pharisees, they say to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Now what Jesus does here is quite similar to what the prophet Nathan did with David. Do you remember that story how Nathan confronted David in about his sin? He, he relayed a story of a, a greedy shepherd with many lambs going and stealing the single lamb of, a, of another shepherd. And, and the story was told in such a way that David would respond with anger and in the process condemn himself as that very same thieving shepherd. Well, in a similar fashion, Jesus tells this parable and asks this question so that the Pharisees would condemn themselves. And that's exactly what they do, because they are these wicked tenants. See, this parable is prophetic because it describes exactly what the Jewish leaders will do with Jesus. They will take the Son of God. They will cast him out of, of Jerusalem and with evil unbelief murder him. And see, their response to this parable will come back to judge and condemn them. They deserve to be evicted from God's vineyard, and they deserve to be condemned for their wickedness. And that's interesting enough, that's how Jesus applies this parable. In verse 34 to, or 43 to 44, Jesus takes their answer and applies it to them. He says in verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, and be given to a people producing its fruits. See, these leaders representing uh, the nation of Israel enjoyed God's privileges. They had the law, they had the promises, they had the covenants, yet they refused and failed to produce fruit. They failed to have faith. And the result is their privileges will be transferred to another people who will produce fruit. But secondly, Jesus says in verse 44, he says, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the idea here is that for those who reject Jesus, the Son of God, they will be crushed into powder. They'll be pulverized into nothing, sometimes in this life, but certainly in the next. Why? Because they try to exalt themselves over the sun, and they will, as a result, be made to be nothing before God. See, this parable points us to the horrible punishment awaiting unbelief. If you reject the Son of God, there is no hope for you. If you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no salvation, because there is only one Savior, and His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. See, in this parable, the landowner is patient with his tenants. He sends servant after servant, and finally he sends his son. And, and dear friends, that's how God the Father is with us. He, he has sent prophet after prophet, and he has finally sent his son. And he calls upon us to believe upon him. We know and love John 3.16, don't we? For, for God to love the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
Verse 18 says, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, beloved, if you reject Jesus, there's no more hope for you. If you have not produced the fruit of faith, there is only condemnation. If you do not believe upon Him, you'll be cast out of God's presence. You'll be evicted from His kingdom. See, this parable warns us against the sin of unbelief. This parable not only warns us of the punishment due to unbelief, but leads us and lets us be reminded of the warnings of Scripture. See, we need to be reminded that the warnings of Scripture are meant to encourage and exhort those of faith to greater faithfulness. Uh, One of the lessons of this parable, uh, one of the lessons this parable has for believers is the lesson that our kingdom privileges come with kingdom responsibilities. Uh, One commentator puts it this way, says, the kingdom of God comes with limitless grace, but also limitless demand. Which is all to say that not only does God desire faith from us, but He desires faithfulness. He wants us to be faithful. Beloved sister, brother in Christ, let us not be like these tenants. Let us not be like these who who not only lacked faith, but they lacked faithfulness. Let us be faithful to our calling. Let us be faithful to our responsibilities. Whether it's in the church as we serve and worship and, and proclaim the good news of Christ. Whether it's in the family as we raise our children in the fear of the Lord. Whether it's in this world as we bear witness and perform good deeds that glorify God. Let us be faithful. Let us not be like these tenants. Since so far we've looked at firstly the, the expectation of fruit, which is our purpose before God. Secondly, we've seen the evil of unbelief, which is our continual problem of selfishness. And thirdly, we've seen the eviction of the faithless, which highlights the punishment of unbelief. The fourth and final thing I want us to consider from this parable is the exaltation of the Son. The exaltation of the Son. We see this in verse 42. As I've already mentioned, verse 42, Jesus cites Psalm 118. And not only does this text stress two responses, i.e. the response of faith and the response of unbelief, but this text highlights God's response to the Messiah. So the Messiah that is rejected by the boulders is chosen and precious in the sight of God. And he is set apart as the cornerstone or the capstone. Now, that word can mean either capstone or cornerstone, but the meaning is still the same. This is a stone which the building depends upon. This is a stone that secures and beautifies the building. And the point is, this rejected stone will be exalted to a place of prominence. Now, one of the questions I wrestled with in preparing for this particular message was that, why is Jesus mixing metaphors here? Why does he move from the image of a vineyard to the image of a building? Why does he talk about the rejected sun and then more talk about the rejected stone? Why this mix of metaphors? Well, one answer is that in the Hebrew, both words were quite similar. The Hebrew word for sun is ben, where stone in Hebrew is eben, and so there is a similarity there. But there's another reason, I believe, for Jesus mixing these metaphors. And it's that Jesus wants us to see how the story ends. Because this story doesn't end with the death of the son. This story doesn't end with the rejection of the son. 
No, it ends with this rejected son being exalted. It ends with this son building an eternal kingdom. It ends with this son building a new kingdom and a new vineyard that produces eternal fruits. And how is this achieved? By the death and resurrection of Christ. By the glorious gospel of God in the salvation of sinners in the name of Christ. And notice what verse 42 says. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And notice what it says. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. See, according to the divine foreknowledge of God and plan of God, God not only sent His Son into the world knowing that the world will reject Him, but God allowed His beloved Son to be put to death by sinners for sinners. Let's be honest. We ought to be rejected for rebelling against God. We ought to be put to death for our sin. The wages of sin is death. Yet for us and for our salvation, it was Jesus, the Son of God, who was rejected. For us and our salvation, it was Jesus Christ who was put to death. See, when Jesus was cast out of Jerusalem, when he was murdered by evil men at the tree of Calvary, he was rejected so that we would be accepted. He, he was put to death so that we would find life. He was condemned so that in him we would be saved. So it is this son of God, the rejected son of God who is rejected by men, but chosen and precious by the chosen and precious inside of God. It is him who lays a new foundation for sinners to be saved. He, it is him who builds a, 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 an eternal and unshakable and a fruitful kingdom of God. A kingdom of salvation of those who have been redeemed. This rejected son, chosen and precious in the sight of God, builds something beautiful and great that we can enter into and find joy and peace. In Acts chapter 4, uh, the apostle Peter actually cites this text as well. He cites Psalm 118 and he applies it to when he addresses the religious leaders. It says there, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This is the stone that was rejected by you, the boulders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Beloved, do you want forgiveness of sins? Do you want to be accepted by God? Do you want to avoid being rejected by God? Do you want to escape the sinful snare of selfishness and unbelief? Then believe in the Son of God. Believe in the Son who selflessly gave Himself for selfish sinners like you and me. Believe upon Him and be saved. And guess what? If you believe in the Son, if unlike these tenants and the Pharisees, you receive the Son, then you will enter into and belong to His kingdom. And you will receive the kingdom privileges that the Pharisees lost, that Israel lost, that these wicked tenants lost. 
And consider what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says from verse 12 to 13, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and being without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In verse 19 and 21, he carries on, he says, So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the household of God. Fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Beloved, by receiving Christ, you become a member of the household of God. You have a residence in the temple of God. You can enter into His presence and enjoy His peace. What privileges. Beloved, if you have your faith in the Son, the privileges that were negated by the Pharisees, the privileges that Israel failed to treasure, they become yours. Or consider some of the privileges that Second Peter tells us, and, and this is a lengthy passage, but a beautiful passage. In First Peter chapter two, verse four to ten, we read, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. What stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying, as, uh, laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Dear Christian, what great privileges are yours now? What blessings you have in Christ. You belong to God. You are His treasured possession. You enjoy His mercy and blessings. Therefore, beloved, turn away from selfishness. Turn away from the snare of unbelief. Believe upon the Son and you will receive the blessings of His kingdom. You will take hold of the privileges that are yours in Christ. Believe upon Him, though. And so as I conclude uh, what seems like a lengthy message, uh, let's take note of a few things that we've looked at. We've, we've seen the expectation of the fruit, namely that God wants fruit-bearing people. We've seen the evil of unbelief, that is our continual problem of selfishness. We've seen the eviction of the faithless, wherein the punishment that is due to unbelief is, is separation from God. And we've also seen the exaltation of the Son, wherein those who believe the Son enter the kingdom and they enjoy its blessings. And so, beloved, before I close, I I do think this applies to two groups of people. This message applies to those in the church. 
See, this parable exhorts us to keep God at the center. This parable exhorts us to, to greater faith and, and greater faithfulness. It exhorts us to, to watch out for that sinful sneer of unbelief, that, that sinful selfishness that, that so often leads us astray. Let's be honest, sometimes even in the church we become like these tenants. We, we become focused on self. We, we make church about ourselves. We, we become satisfied with the status quo. And we become negligent of our responsibilities. And see, this, this, this parable is meant to exhort us to, to, be, to be a blessing to others. To not be self-focused, but, but other-focused, other-concerned. To, to give ourselves to, to others as we proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness into light. And so, for those in the church, this parable should be an exhortation to us. An encouragement to be faithful to the Lord. But for those in the world, for those who are outside the church, this parable calls upon you to receive the Son. This parable calls upon you to not ignore His invitation. It calls upon you to see the grace of God that's been extended to you. God hasn't just sent prophets. No, He sent His eternally begotten Son so that you would believe and have, have life that you'd not be under condemnation, but that you'd receive his, his blessing, that you would come into his kingdom. See, God has been gracious to you, dear unbeliever. He calls upon you even this morning. Trust in his son. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will find forgiveness of sins. You'll be accepted by God. And you'll find satisfaction and peace and joy. Beloved, let me return to that question from the start. When Jesus the King returns, what will he find? Will he find faith in us? Will he find fruit in the church? And will he be pleased with what he sees? Oh, I trust and pray that he will return and see us as a faithful people. A people who glorify him and seek his glory in all things. I pray that he would be honored and glorified by us. May this be true of us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can take some time to reflect and meditate through this difficult parable at times. We pray, dear Lord, that you'd help us to understand its challenge, but also understand its encouragement. Knowing that you have called us to be faithful and knowing that you have called us to enjoy the privileges that you've given us, but to also be responsible. And so, dear Lord, I do ask that you'd help us as a church body, as a church family, to be pleasing in your sight, to walk in a manner that truly honors you and glorifies you, that we would not be like these tenants, self-focused, self-seeking, self-exalting, but rather that we would be Christ-centered, God-honoring people who produce the fruit that you long to see, faith and faithfulness. Help us, dear Lord, to, to be a people like this. We confess our sin, we confess our failures, but we thank you, Lord, that you are a God of grace, that you've given us your spirit to, to fill us and to lead us into all truth and godliness. And so help us, we pray, in Christ's wonderful and glorious name. Amen.